One of the um, issues that um, seems to be raising its head in our modern society that a lot of people are concerned about is the issue of anti-Semitism. Um, the idea of persecuting people that are from a Jewish background or a Jewish or origin. Um, it's in the news, the Labour Party are being accused of it, or um, not, not dealing with it effectively, and um, that's one of the big issues there. And of course, it's something we should be concerned about. Jewish people are a minority in our culture, they're vulnerable because of that, and, and we should really want to be against it. And actually, when we look at the history of our world, particularly in the 20th century, we look back and see the extremes of anti-Semitism that happened in Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, when it started off as persecution of Jewish people that was organized by the government and ended up as actually an organized extermination of the Jewish people and millions were sent to their death. Anti-Semitism is a terrible thing and yet it's not something that is unique to the 20th century. It's something that occurred throughout the centuries in so-called Christian Europe. And some people say, well, isn't Christianity partly responsible for anti-Semitism? After all, Christianity tells us that um, the Jews were the one that called for Jesus to be crucified, that the Jews have rejected their Messiah. Um, surely Christianity encourages a, an attitude of looking down on um, Jews. It's not much of a step, is it, from that, that people say, to then persecuting them. Well, I can be clear this morning that actually the Bible nowhere encourages us to persecute Jewish people. Um, the Bible's clear, love your neighbour, love your enemies, love everyone. Nowhere does it encourage us to persecute anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what their backgrounds. The Bible calls us to love as Jesus calls us to love. And actually, I want to show you this morning that what Paul's saying here is, actually, is to say that as Christians, rather than being anti-Semitic, in some ways we should honour and respect Jews more than anyone else because of their special place in God's plan. So let's look at this passage in a bit more depth and a bit more thought and see what Paul is saying in here. And he says at the start, um, and actually in the, in the passage beforehand, in chapter 11, verse um, 19, he says, you will say the branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. The branches broken off there were the Jewish people that didn't believe in Jesus. And the branches grafted in were the Christians, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, that had believed in Jesus. In, had believed in Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 20, granted you were broken off because of unbelief. Sorry, granted they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. But do not be arrogant. Paul is saying, don't look at those Jewish people that haven't believed in Jesus and think you're better than them. Don't be arrogant. And then um, following on from that, in the same way, in verse 25, the first verse that we read this morning, he says, do not be conceited. He wants to tell us things so that we're not conceited, we're not arrogant, we don't think of ourselves as better than the Jewish people. Why is Paul writing this in Romans? Well, Rome was in a way a unique Christian church in the first century. You see, most Christian churches started in the synagogue. They started with a core of Jewish people that believed in Jesus, um, and then many other non-Jews and Gentiles would join them, and they'd have a core of Jewish people, but um, it would quickly grow and include a lot of non-Jews or Gentiles as well. That would be the nature of most churches in the first century. But in Rome, there was a specific history that happened that made the church more naturally non-Jewish. You see, what happened was... Um, Probably Christianity has started in Rome very early, very, very early on. It could even have been that there were people at Pentecost that lived in Rome but were visiting Jerusalem for a, a Jewish festival. 
And they may have even become Christians at that first Pentecost, just after Jesus had died and risen again. And they may have taken their Christianity back to Rome, so that Christianity in Rome might have started really early on, in the sort of 30 or so AD. But in 41 AD, the Emperor Claudius decreed that all Jewish people be kicked out of Rome. Tough, wasn't it, in those days? You think anti-Semitism is a new thing. It was happening even back then. So all the Jewish people had to leave Rome. And that meant the church in Rome, the church that remained, were only non-Jews or Gentiles. And for 10 years or so, until the Jews were allowed back in in about 53 AD, and the, the Christian church there existed as a non-Jewish church without Jews around them. In, in a context of a city that had kicked out the Roman, kicked out the Jews. And so you can see how very naturally the Roman church would be quite negative towards Judaism. And negative towards Jews. And when in 53 AD Jews were allowed back and some of them were Christian Jews coming back, it would have been quite hard for the Christian church in Rome to reintegrate the Jewish Christians coming. And they may well have had a very negative attitude towards the, 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 the non-Christian Jews as well. And so Paul writes Romans in about 56 AD, and three years after the Jews were allowed back into Rome. And he writes into that context. And so he writes to address this issue, an issue that was probably unique to the church in Rome. Look, you non-Jewish Christians, you who've been at your own church for 10 years without any Jews at all, uh, and now the Jews are returning, you may look down on the Jewish Christians, you may look down on the Jews... But I want to say to you, actually, don't be conceited. Don't think you're more special than them. The Jews have a special place in God's plan. So, that was the slide for that bit. Next slide. <laughs> so Paul says, um, to help, him, help them with that, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, in verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now, you might think mystery means something that um, people don't know about. How can you be ignorant of something? You're meant to be ignorant of things you don't know about. Um, not yesterday evening, um, I came to church and put some things in church and realised that the notice sheets weren't here. Um, so I looked around, I couldn't see them anywhere, and started panicking. Um, and I, I, I messaged the, um, the administrator who prints the notice sheet, and she said, yes, I printed them on Thursday. Um, and I looked around again, and I couldn't, still couldn't see them. It was a mystery. Where on earth had the notice sheets got to? Um, Eventually it did turn up, and um, we got them out again. But when Paul talks about a mystery here, he's not talking about that sort of mystery. The mystery, word mystery here is a more sort of technical term. It means something that has been hidden, but now is revealed. Something about God's plans for the future that now in Jesus Christ have become clearer. And what does Paul say the mystery is? Well, he says he's got three elements, and this picks up on actually what he's been saying already in chapter 11. He says, first of all, the nation of Israel, the Jews in general, not all Jews, but Jews in general, have had their hearts hardened. The message of the good news of Jesus has gone out there, but most of them, not all of them, but most of them, have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. They've not accepted Jesus as God's special person to come and save them. Israel has been hardened. But Paul says that was part of God's plan because the result of Israel's hardening is that the message of the good news, having once gone to the Jews who then mainly rejected it, was to go out to the Gentiles and non-Jews so that they, i.e. us, could hear the good news about Jesus and they could believe and they could become Christians and they could be saved, they could become part of God's kingdom. So actually God's plan 
um, amazing as it was, a mystery though it seems to be, was that Israel would be hardened, the people of God's, the people that God had been working through for the whole of the Old Testament period would be hardened to the message, and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, would come in and be part of the kingdom of God. But Paul says, God hasn't given up on Israel. Because the last part of the plan is that when all the Gentiles have come to believe, that Israel will then come in and be saved. And in a sense, all Israel will be saved. Now, I could spend hours talking about all the discussions and debates about what it means for all Israel to be saved. And if you want to, I did talk a little bit about it at the end of an evening service two weeks ago. So if you want to look, back, look, on, look online and listen to that, you can do. I've not got time to do that this morning. I don't want to focus on that this morning. I don't think it means every Jewish person will be saved. Otherwise, Paul has said every Israelite will be saved. But it does think, I do think it means in a sense that Jews in general, or the nation of Israel in general, at some point turn properly to the Christ, who is in a sense their Christ, and will come to trust in him before Christ returns. How that will work out, how it will come about, we can't be sure, we can't see. Um, but Paul is convinced God has not given up on Israel. And that's what he wants to say to the Roman Christians. You may think God has given up on Israel and moved on and he's just focusing on you non-Jewish Christians. No, he hasn't. God made promises to Israel and he wants to stick to them. And so he says, do not be conceited, do not be arrogant. Now, I guess and I hope actually that very few of you, if any of you, are anti-Semitic. I wouldn't ask you to put your hands up if you're anti-Semitic. <laughs> um, we live in a world where that's been strongly discouraged, and rightly so, especially after what happened in the Second World War and the Holocaust. But actually, as Christians, we can quite easily become conceited. We can quite easily begin to think that we're better than others. We can maybe look down on non-Christians and think, well, we've come to believe, why haven't they? We're obviously better than them. We can look at people who live a very unchristian lifestyle and think, well, we're better than them. We can look at our church and think, our church is wonderful, and look at other churches and think, well, they're, they're very right. They're too stuck in tradition. They're theologically dodgy. Um, they're just a bunch of whatever. We can quite easily become conceited. We can quite easily become arrogant and look down on others. And part of what Paul is saying here, as well as talking about God's plan for Israel, is actually to want to get us to focus on God himself and what God is like. Because actually, as we begin to focus more and more on the character and the personality and the attributes of God, then our own arrogance, our own conceit, begins to evaporate. In the light of who God is, we are humbled completely. And there's three things that Paul emphasizes about God in this passage. So, God's character and human conceit. And the first thing is this, it's God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. And this is all bound up with God's plan for Israel. If you look at verse 28, he says there, as far as the gospel is concerned, the Jews are enemies for your sake, you Gentiles, you non-Jews. But as far as election is concerned, i.e. God's choice, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? The patriarchs were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, go back to Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. God came to Abraham. He said to Abraham, look, go, go to this land I'm going to point out to you. And in that land, he made incredible promises to Abraham. 
He promises that, promises that seem completely unbelievable. And yet Abraham believed by faith. And Israel were descended from Abraham. And so when Paul says in verse 28, they're loved on account of the patriarchs, what Paul is saying is that um, God has made promises to Abraham's family and God will stick by his promises because God is faithful. What did God promise to Abraham? In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament, in many ways, the, the unfolding of the story is all about God's promises coming to fruition, God's promises coming true, God proving faithful, often despite the fact that Israel were disobedient or unfaithful. So God promised Abraham that he would have, from his descendants, a big family, a large nation would come out of him. And this for Abraham was hard to believe because he didn't even have his own son, at least not to start with. And yet by the beginning of Exodus, the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, we're told that the Israelites were very numerous. There were loads of them. So much so the Egyptians were already beginning to be anti-Semitic and persecute them. Uh, and God promised that, um, that people would have a land to live in. And God took them out of Egypt and rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. God's promise to bring them into the promised land and give them a place in the promised land was fulfilled. By the end of the book of Joshua, that's where they were, living in the promised land. And God promised that he'd make a great nation out of them. And although for the first few centuries it was tough going in the promised land as they were invaded by lots of different groups, by the time of David and the end of his rule, they were established as a powerful and a strong kingdom in the region. God's promises one by one became true. And in God's ultimate promise was to Abraham, he says, look, through you, I will not just bless you, but I'll bless all nations. And when Jesus Christ came, through him, all nations, through Abraham's one key descendant, all nations are blessed. In a way, that's what Paul talks about when the Gentiles are coming in, the non-Jews are coming into the gospel. You see, God makes promises in the Bible, and the Bible shows that God always fulfills his promises, despite the disobedience and the failures and the uselessness of the people he promises to. And so Paul says, look, God is faithful. In verse 29, he says, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That's a great word, isn't it? Um, we might have to spell it. Um, actually, um, the word in Greek might, might mean not so much irrevocable, but um, in the sense that he, he doesn't he doesn't think he's made a wrong choice. He doesn't think he's made the wrong decision. When God makes a promise, he'll stick to it and he'll never regret it. Because God is faithful. How does that make you feel to think about God's faithfulness? It's such a crucial theme in the Bible. I'm reading through the Psalms at the moment. And again and again, they emphasize that God is faithful. We live in a world, though, don't we, where actually faithfulness is something that is hard to come by. Many people have experienced um, relationships or marriages where people have made commitments to them, made promises to them, and then let them down badly. That's horrible and painful when we're faced with that kind of unfaithfulness. We live in a country where our politicians make great promises to us, and yet they seem to fail us again and again. And so our trust in politicians, our trust in the government goes down. We live in a society where companies and corporations make promises, and yet they often 
go back on. Faithfulness is in short supply. And yet Paul says, God is faithful. The Bible again and again says, God is faithful. What he promises, he will bring about. And so actually, as Christians, when we look at other people that are Christians, or even when we look at the Jews, if God is being faithful to them, if God is fulfilling his promises for them, how can we look down on them? If we see other Christians, rubbish and fragile as they might be, actually we're rubbish and fragile as well, but forgetting about that, rubbish and fragile as they might be, still God is faithful to them. How can we treat them any differently? God's faithfulness overcomes our conceit. But secondly, God is merciful. This comes across very clearly in verses um, 30 to 32. Paul there emphasizes that both for Jews and Gentiles there's this pattern. People's disobedience is followed by God's mercy. In fact, it says in... um, Verse 32, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience. There's a sense in which the the punishment for our disobedience, the punishment for our rebellion against God is our imprisonment in our disobedience. God says, look, you've turned against me. You've gone your own way. Well, I'm going to make sure you really see the consequences of going your own way. really see the consequences of your disobedience. And so we find ourselves stuck in in a lifestyle, in a way, in a direction of life that is completely disobedient to God, going our own way, doing our own thing, and we we feel the pain and the hurt and the destruction that that causes. God does that as a punishment. He also does it as a way of showing us our need for him. We're imprisoned in this disobedience. We can't do anything to get out of it ourselves. We're locked in there. And yet God's mercy provides the key to the prison. God's mercy provides the way out from that pattern of disobedience. And the whole book of Romans has been about that in a way. Paul has shown us in the first part of the book how we are stuck in this round of disobedience, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, in different ways. Maybe we're stuck in this sense of disobedience, of sin, He says in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all stuck like that. And then in in chapters 4 to 6, it goes on to show us that God's mercy has come about through the key to let us out of that prison. And that key is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. We don't deserve anything from God. We don't deserve to be alive And yet God in his mercy gave his only son. While we were still disobedient, while we were still sinners, Christ came to die for us. That we could receive forgiveness, we could be unlocked from that prison of disobedience. We could be freed from that judgment of God. We could come to live for him. And that's true whoever we are. Whether we're Jewish, whether we're non-Jewish, Whatever our background, whether we've grown up in a Christian home, whether we've become a Christian late in life, or whether we're not yet a Christian, this is what's open to you. God's mercy. Because God's mercy is the only way to be set free from the prison of disobedience. God's mercy is the only way to enter into his kingdom and his eternal life. And that mercy is available for all, and yet in a sense it's a very levelling thing, isn't it? 
How can we look down on others when we too have been disobedient? How can we think we're better than others when actually our only hope is depending on God and on his mercy? Do you see God's mercy? Does that humble you before him and humble you before others? And finally, not only is God faithful and God merciful, but God is unfathomable. Unfathomable. (laughs) Paul, as he comes to the end of this passage and really um, the end of this whole section from chapters 9 to 11, and away the whole end of the whole section from chapter 1 through to chapter 11, turns into this great um, doxology. It's a big word, isn't it? It just means a, a, a sort of hymn of praise to God. And the thrust of this hymn of praise is how unfathomable God is. Oh, the depth for the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I don't know much, if you know much about um, oceanography, but apparently we know less about the bottom of the sea than we know about the surface of the moon. Um, apparently, I was reading this only last night, um, we have mapped properly only 20% of the bottom of the sea. And yet we've got detailed maps of the moon. Um, The sea at its deepest point is 11 kilometres deep. Um, That means you could put Mount Everest in it and you still have a couple of kilometres above that to go. It blows your mind, doesn't it? How deep the sea is. And Paul says, the depth How deep, how unfathomable is the riches of God. God is completely beyond their understanding. And his riches are beyond understanding. His riches probably refers to the fact that God in his grace and mercy has called people from all over the world and has blessed them with his forgiveness and his grace. So there's people here, there's people in Australia, there's people in India, there's people in China, there's people in Africa, there's people in South America. Billions of people. And who who knows how many more to come? are saved by God, receive God's riches, receive that place in heaven. How amazing are the riches of God? How beyond our understanding, our comprehension. More people are blessed by him than we can even imagine in our tiny, feeble minds. Uh, And how amazing the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. That he he would make this plan. I mean, who would come up with this idea of the Christian faith that God would send his own son and his son would come not to roar immediately, but to die on a cross? Who would come up with that? And yet God, in the depth of his wisdom, has decided this is the way he's going to bring about salvation. And all about the knowledge of God. Um, in our world today, we, we think we're so scientific, we think we've learned so much, and we look back on people a hundred years ago and think, well, they were stupid, weren't they? And yet, how much do you think God knows about our universe? How much does God know about his creation that we have yet to discover? If we knew that, it would probably completely blow our minds. Paul goes on to say, who has known the mind of the Lord? Our minds are feeble and tiny and useless and nothing compared with how great and awesome God's mind is. How can anyone tell God what to do? Does that ever occur to you? Sometimes we think we know better than God, don't we? Sometimes we think what, God should have done this or that. And yet God is so much better and more fully understanding of the world than we can ever imagine or be. Who could be his counsellor? Who could tell him the best thing to do? And who has ever given to God that God should repay them? 
Actually, all of us are completely and utterly in debt to God. Our very existence is only because God said so. Let alone our salvation through Jesus Christ. When you really begin to think about what God is like, we have to say we don't know much. And yet what we do know blows our minds. And yet so often, because we live in a world where God is pretty much not mentioned, apart from as a swear word. We we live in a world where the media pretty much tries to block out any talk of God. We live in a world where people say, don't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table. We don't really think about God much. We don't talk about him, but when we really begin to think about him, when we really begin to think about what he's like, it should blow our minds, and it should change our lives, and it should stop us from being conceited or arrogant or thinking we're better than others. Do you really know what God is like? Have you really grasped how faithful he is, how he will stick by his promises in a way that no one in his life will? Have you really grasped how merciful he is that no matter how much you've messed up, no matter how much you've done wrong, God has provided the key to rescue you from your disobedience through Jesus Christ? Do you really understand how unfathomable God is? Let's pray.